Wow, it's so uh, wonderful to be back um, from what you guys called my vacation, all right? I think you're the ones that got the vacation, not me. I did have a friend text me from out of state and said, where are you in France? His mother had been listening to the messages and thought I actually was in France. So, so thankful to be here. I thought maybe my retro stash might throw you off, but... Most, most of you recognize me, so a few people introduce themselves. I hope preaching's like riding a bicycle, right? Uh, you, you just get back on, it feels natural. Uh, for some reason, I am sweating like a pig this morning, and uh, I got all the way to the church building about an hour ago, and I had forgotten my Bible and notes back in the house, so I'm trying to get it all back together, all right? So I'm very excited about what we're going to study today. I hope all of you got a copy of the Nehemiah Scripture Journal. If you didn't, you're not going to offend me to walk back to the lobby and grab one right now. There's just Scripture in place for you to take notes. We've got a message outline and lifelines today, but for now on through this series, I'd like you to take notes in here. So if you need to grab one of those, which obviously quite a few of you do, or either you've got to get to the restroom, um, please grab one of those in the lobby as we start this study of Nehemiah. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, so my first illustration is from Alabama football, okay? Are you happy? Well, you should be happy even if you're not an Alabama fan. See Daryl shaking his head back there. This is one of the worst infamous stories in Alabama football history. 1953, Alabama's playing in the Cotton Bowl. They're playing powerhouse Rice. Rice is beating them bad. A guy named Dickie Dogle is taking the ball around right in on the five-yard line. He's For Rice, he's passed all the Alabama defenders. He's streaking down the sidelines. When the guy to your right right there, Tommy Lewis, jumps off the sidelines and tackles him. <laughs> Lots of penalty flags were thrown in that moment. He was kicked out of the game. He was major league embarrassed. Well, the reporter finally said, Mr. Lewis, what were you thinking? Why did you do this? And he said, I'm sorry, I'm just too full of Alabama. <laughs> and guys, this morning, we're going to begin a study of a man that I just want to say to you was just too full of God. I mean, we watch Nehemiah, we're going to see a man who jumps off the sidelines into the middle of the game. And that's our challenge in this series. It's for us in a culture where there's um, boulders and crumbles and rocks and rubble that we be the people who stand up and make a difference. That we're so full of God, we can't just stay on the sideline. And this man, Nehemiah, he initiates an incredible revival. I love this definition of revival from my friend Dave Clayton. Revival is the moment that God undeniably and radically changes the heart of His people so they can undeniably and radically change their community. And that's what Nehemiah is going to teach us. It's going to challenge us. It's going to inspire us. It's going to give us an example. So let me give just a little bit of the background before we get right into the text. You know, when God first chose Israel, Scripture says He chose them to be a light to the nation. Israel wasn't just about God having this little bitty group of people over here for Himself. It was a, in, a rather small, insignificant nation. But God chose the weak, as He always did, to display His power. 
And so his goal was, through Israel, not only would they be blessed, but they would be a blessing to all the nations around them. They would display the character of God, and they would make the way for the Messiah. But you know their history. They're not very good at sticking with God. And finally, they're off into idolatry. And God finally does what he promised he'd do. If they weren't going to follow him, he was going to send them into exile. So he, Babylon takes over, destroys Jerusalem, and all of the Jewish people are taken to what we would call modern-day Iran. By the time we read Nehemiah, it's now the Persian Empire. And, and so God's people are in a lot of trouble. Now, about a hundred years before we read this book of Nehemiah, the Jewish people are begin to be sent back. Zerubbabel goes first. He goes back and begins to rebuild the temple. About 80 years later, Ezra comes along and goes back as a preacher to help the people. And then about 13 years later is when we run into Nehemiah. And let me say this. Nehemiah is your last stop in the Old Testament before you get to Jesus. And so Nehemiah is sent back. And let's see what happens. Now one cool thing here, we know from here is that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And that doesn't sound like much to us, but in our terms that would be like the president's chief of staff. Everything came through Nehemiah. He tasted the food, he decided the schedule, he protected the king. And so Nehemiah is in a position of power where he controls many things. Now here's a cool fact. The word Nehemiah means God comforts. So isn't it just like God that after this, these decades of discipline and punishment, now we have a fe- Heavenly Father who sends Nehemiah to comfort and to restore and to revive his people. Okay, enough introduction. Let's get into the text. Let's start in verse 1. If you're about to have a child, you might find the name of your child in this text. In the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Keslev, that's probably November, in the 20th year, Nehemiah says, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And they asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As we open up this journal of Nehemiah, the first thing we see is this is a man who cared. And the first thing we see, he cared enough to ask. And that's what you're going to notice about Nehemiah. When he could have completely divorced himself from this story, said, you know what, I I don't want to fool with this. I'm in a comfortable, great place. Nehemiah is willing to get off the sidelines and to care. And first of all, he cared enough to ask the question. He wanted to know what the condition was. And he gets a really bad report. What what do the people say? Jerusalem is in great trouble, and it's in shame, and the walls are broken down. Now listen, Nehemiah didn't have to care. He had it, as we would say in the South, he had it made in the shade. All he had to do is keep his mouth shut, keep his job back in Susa with the king, and he'd be okay. 
but he wanted to know. Now, what's so interesting about this to me is that Nehemiah, this wasn't his fault. People have been back in Jerusalem for over a hundred years. What have they been doing? Nehemiah could have easily wagged his finger at them. There's a possibility that Nehemiah has never ever been in Jerusalem. And yet he finds out about this. And he finds out about the brokenness and he, it disturbs him. Because I know in the day that we live, that's why I'm so excited about preaching Nehemiah, there's a lot of brokenness around us. There's a lot of rubble. We look at our country and we're shocked at where we are. We look around our city and we see things going on we never thought would go on. We look in our families and we see brokenness. We see so much addiction and issues all around us and we think, can it ever be brought back? And that's what Nehemiah runs into. Real revival begins with honesty. Before things can change, you've got to be willing to admit there is a big problem. And that's what Nehemiah said. Now look at the next verse there. Verse 4 says a lot. It says there, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Watch Nehemiah's first reaction. It's not anger. It could have been. What are you guys doing back there? I mean, we've sent two contingents, probably at least 50,000 people back to Jerusalem, and you're letting it be this way? And, and, and so Nehemiah, he just weeps. Point number two is he cared enough to weep. Now, now think about this with me just for a second. What, what's the big deal? He's like, come on, buddy. This whole book is about rebuilding some walls. Oh, don't, don't leave it at that. It's much more than that. We say, well, why were walls such a big deal that Nehemiah would sit down and weep? Because you really didn't have a city without walls. There was no protection. You could be raided by bandits at any time. There was no security. And on top of this, there was no security for the very house of God, the temple which had been rebuilt. And so Nehemiah just sits down and he weeps. That's his reaction. I love the old definition of a com- compassion. When someone's compassionate, it means your pain in my heart. And though Nehemiah is away and Nehemiah is leading a nice, soft life, he can feel the pain of the people of God. He can feel the pain of a God whose city is destroyed. And Nehemiah develops this amazing burden for God's people. Can I ask you this morning, just up front, what do you weep about? What breaks your heart? That's what I love about Nehemiah. Here's a guy who so deeply cares. He doesn't just look and go about his business. He doesn't just look and say it's their problem. He looks, he stops, he weeps. And guys, when we look at things around us, I think one of my problems is we are so inundated every moment with bad news. We see so many things to be upset about because we have 24 hours a day news. Nehemiah didn't have that. He gets this report and he weeps. And I think for some of us, we've got to step back further enough to go, what's going on? Am I I honest enough to go ahead and be real about the problems that are happening around us? And do I care enough to listen? And do I care enough to actually weep? Because if, if revival is going to start, 
then God's Holy Spirit must break our hearts. Because you cannot manufacture revival. You cannot restore just on our own. It's going to have to be of God. But it starts when we invite the Holy Spirit to break our hearts about the things that break God's heart. And then we just can't pass by it. And then we just care deeply. Love this old story about President Teddy Roosevelt. You know he was a fireball of a president. Full of energy and passion. Very emotional. One day he's walking down the street. And all the crowds are in a barrier behind him. And he's is always walking really fast. And as he's walking down the street, some woman behind the barriers yells out, Teddy Roosevelt, you are a great man. And he turned around and he looked her in the eye and said, Teddy Roosevelt is not a great man. Teddy Roosevelt is a simple, plain, ordinary man, highly motivated. And guys, what God needs today, it doesn't have to be superstars. What God needs are just ordinary people like me and you who are motivated who don't become so inundated by the bad news in our culture that we cut our hearts off to really care. He cared. As this ties in so well with, with Jeff Arrington's message last Sunday, and there's so many great messages over the last five weeks. And th- those three points he closed with were so, so strong. You are to see the brokenness, you are to feel the brokenness, and then you are to what? Go. That's what Nehemiah does. But let me tell you where, where he goes. Next place he goes is he goes to God. Look at the second part of verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Third point, he cared enough to pray. And I need to pray. Scripture says here, he fasted. Listen, my friends. Fasting is intensifying your prayer life. We, we sort of shy away from that because it sounds so weird to us. But nowhere in the Bible do we see God's people not combining prayer with fasting. Because in fasting is when I say, I'm going to get rid of all the, the things around me that might distract me so I can focus completely on God. And that's what Nehemiah does. He begins to pray. When he sees the mess around him, guys, he knew who to turn to. You know, Nehemiah doesn't go, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Let me cry a little bit about it. And then let me, let me get back to Jerusalem as quick as I can and get to work. No, no, no. He knew he couldn't do anything about it. Guys, real revival, real restoration cannot happen without God. And Nehemiah knows it. So Nehemiah stops and he prays and he prays. And we're going to see him at least 12 times in this book. Stop and pray. Because he knows he doesn't have the power. Reminds me of the old story about Stacy King. He was a um, rookie point, point guard on the Chicago Bulls. He happened to be in the game where Michael Jordan scored a record 69 points. Um, they let him in the game just for a moment. He was fouled. He shot two foul, foul shots. He only made one. And so after the game, you know, the locker room's packed, and all these reporters are over asking Michael Jordan about his record performance. And finally, one reporter couldn't even get close, and she saw Stacey King over the other side of the locker room all by himself, so she just wandered over there and said, Mr. King, I need a quotation. What will you remember about tonight? I love his response. I'll always remember it as the night Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. And guys, Nehemiah understands 
when it comes to rebuilding this city and these people and this wall, it's going to be God. And so he stops and he prays. Now, if we can all be honest for a moment, I don't know anybody in this room, if they were cornered today, including myself, who would say, I pray enough. You know, one thing I struggle with in some parts of my sabbatical, because I was off by myself a lot, was staying focused in my prayer life. And by time just to, to pray for hours. And yet at times, I admit to you, it's difficult. And most of us would say, we don't pray enough. We don't pray fervently enough. Now, Nehemiah, I think we see the answer to this. When do people really pray? When they see a great need. Nehemiah knows that the city of God, the people of God are in trouble. When you see a great need, but that won't do it. And you believe in a great God, then you pray. If I'm willing to open my eyes up and weep and hurt about the brokenness in families, the brokenness in church, the brokenness in culture, and I believe that we serve a God who can do something about it, that great need and great God, what would I do except pray? And when watch Nehemiah, let's, let's get into his prayer and, and, and see how he does this. Look, look at verse, go back to verse 5 with me. It's an awesome prayer. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. He starts off like any great prayer starts off by recognizing who God is and how awesome God is and how powerful God is. My friends, it would change our prayer life if we were willing to hurt about what's going on around us, and yet we also believe that God cared and God would do something, and that God was awesome. And then look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I in my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Man, what a prayer. First of all, he recognizes how great God is. And then he recognizes how messed up they are. And he starts off with praise, and he goes into confession. But here's what's surprising to me about confession, is Nehemiah doesn't point his finger and say, they messed up. What, what word does he use, guys? We messed up. If that wasn't enough, Nehemiah, you, you see the line there. He says, even myself and my family, we're a part of the problem. Because when revival comes is when God's people stop pointing their fingers at everybody else and raise their hand to God and confess their part of the problem. Listen to me, guys. It takes no great person. It takes no spiritual person. It takes no brilliant person to just stand up here and say, we got this problem, that problem, and in that a mess, and our country's going to hell. That takes nothing. Anybody can do that. But it takes someone with faith who says, not only do I see it, not only do I weep about it, but I believe I serve a God who will do something about it, and I need to get some things cleared up with him so I can be a part of the answer. 
Now I keep reading. And Nehemiah does something that always tickles me. He starts quoting a lot of scriptures. Anybody remember growing up when, this is going to sound bad because I'm one of them now, the old preacher would come and pray and just quote scripture to God. If you grew up in Montgomery, you probably can remember some of the guys, man. And they'd, I, I hated when they came to our gospel meetings because they prayed about 20 minutes, you know. And they, and, they would, and they would quote all these scriptures all through their prayer. And I used to, as a kid, sit, smart out of a kid, sit there thinking, what is their problem, man? Don't they know that God knows the scriptures? I mean, why did they have to quote it to him? Well, guess what? I'm wrong. This is a good practice. I'll repent. Look, look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, throw your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From these I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by strong your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of the king. And then one more throwaway line we'll get into next week. Now I was cupbearer to the king. He cared enough to pray. And remember this prayer. He praises God for who He is. That's what he needs to start. He confesses who He is and the problems of His people. And then He begins to claim the promises of God. I mean, He is quoting Scripture to God. God, do you remember back when you told Moses about this? That if your people went off, you'd exile them. But if they would repent and come back to you, that you'd take them back to their homeland, the promised land, and you'd bless them. I'm calling you on this today, God. I'm praying this scripture back to you. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. You not only need to be reading your Bible, you and I need to be praying our Bible. And let me say this to you. If you're struggling in your prayer life, this may be the best tip I can give you. Because you don't have to come up with something every day. You just pray the scripture you've read back to God. You claim those promises. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. And then I hope you noticed, and here's our fourth point, he cared enough to volunteer. He said, Lord, I I want you to bless me as I get about this thing. It's easy to know, it's easy to weep, it's easy to pray. The challenge is to volunteer. You see, we believe, because of the teaching of Scripture, that prayer changes things. More than anything, prayer changes me, right? Because in prayer, you're trying to align your will with God's will. That's what prayer is about. But there are times where prayer doesn't just change things, it doesn't just change me, Prayer calls me to change things. As I pray these things to God, I'm volunteering. Lord, I want to be a part of the answer. I'm volunteering. Listen, that's what I love about Nehemiah. You're going to see it all through these chapters. He doesn't just talk. He acts. And you know as well as I do. We live in a culture that's full of talk. 
where everybody feels like they've got to give their opinion. And we've given them on social media complete freedom to say whatever they want. And that's all right. Because talk is cheap. And we all can talk and we all can throw stones. But the question is, are we willing to do something? You see, we have lots of advocates in our culture. I think it ought to be this way. And why is it this way? And why did Washington do this? And why is our city this way? And why? That's not much, guys. We, we don't need more advocates. We don't need just more fiery posts. What we need are activists. Who people say, I'm going to get engaged in the work. I'm going to help to rebuild. That's a great story. Let me ask you this question. It's what I've been asking myself the last few weeks I'm studying this. Because we see, our, you got our points here. He cared enough to ask. He wanted to know. He cared enough to just stop and weep. He cared enough to pray. And he cared enough to volunteer. Why did this dude care so much? Why is he willing to get off the sidelines and into the game when the game is not going to be easy? I've been asking that, and I've been searching this scripture. Why do you care so much? Why why should we care so much? And and I noticed a a phrase in here that, that frankly, and this would struck me, a couple months ago is I love Nehemiah. I've taught classes on I've never preached a, a sermon series on Nehemiah. And I'm so fired up about it. But there's a line in here I never paid attention to. He said, I want you to hear the prayer of the people who delight to fear your name. Other translations say the people who love to honor you. Why is Nehemiah so passionate? Listen closely. The honor of God is on the line. You see, we read this and just think this city in rubble. My friends, this is the city of God, Jerusalem. This is where God dwells. And for it to be in rubble is a reflection of God. And and, and Nehemiah loves God so much... He wants to honor God. My friend, that's a great slogan for your life. I want my life to honor God. Now, when you're going back to school, are you going to bring honor to God in your school as you go to work? Are you going to bring honor to God there? Are people going to notice something different enough? Are you going to be that light? When you go in your neighborhoods, are we can, people going to notice something different? When you're on social media, are they going to notice just something more faithful about you? Will they see something different? Why would it be different? What would motivate me? Is that I just, man, the honor of God's on the line. Listen to me, church. And this is why church is so big. Because the greatest parallel to what we're talking about here of, of the people of God of Israel is the new Israel, which is us. And listen to me, the way we as a church live and serve is a reflection on God. 
as a church, what should motivate us out of our minds is that we want to be a church that honors God. There's enough lukewarm churches. There's enough dead churches. There's enough churches that just talk. There's enough churches that just preach. What God needs is a church that does, that is active, that cares, that says, you know what? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about, are we doing anything that would get people's attention? Are we being a light to our country? Are we so different that people would have to honor God? Thank you. Maybe the mustache is working. (laughs) Can I ask you, and do you care about the honor of God? And here's my, my question as we close out. Are you ready to get off the sidelines and into the game? Something really hit me during my sabbatical. I don't think I had the words for it until I heard a message where they used these words. I think I have actually been in a place of spiritual grief. Guys, you may not feel the way I do, so just, just let this be personal for a moment. I look at our nation, I don't recognize it. I look at our politics, and I hate every bit of it. I grew up in Montgomery. I ride around this city with a broken heart every day. I drive by the schools I went to that looked like they ought to be closed. I drive by all kinds of places and neighborhoods that are in poverty and people that are standing on the streets. And, and it's for someone who grew up here and loves us. And it gets, from my limited perspective, I remember days that were very different. I remember when there wasn't the racial division. When I was in high school, every major high school in Montgomery was 60% white, 40% black. And we all got along. Remember that, Charles? I don't know what happened. But it breaks my heart. I look at some of my own family members and they seem to be far from Christ. It breaks my heart. I look at churches. Guys, I I don't know of any church, I don't know any church anywhere whose numbers are high, as high now as they were before COVID. And you can think of the biggest church in this town. We're, we're in the midst of rubble. Many people say this is a, a post-Christian age. Last Sunday, I was going to church sort of out, way out east, and so I left early enough just to go drive through a lot of church parking lots. And there were very few cars. And I could tell from their sign the service was on. And and maybe you feel the way I do. Maybe you don't. But I'm telling you, I've identified it as a place of grief. And you know the stages of grief, right? Denial, anger, seeking to control it. Depression, and finally what? Acceptance. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. Kingdom grief doesn't 
end in acceptance. Kingdom grief ends in activation. We see these things. It hurts us. We grieve over the state of so many things around us. We grieve about some of our own personal issues. We grieve about the addictions all that surround us are destroying families and destroying whole communities. We grieve over the the racism. We grieve over the poverty around us. We grieve over so many things. But the difference in Christians is we don't end the grieving process at a point where we say, it's too bad, guys. I mean, look over here at Daryl Bailey. I cannot imagine what this man sees every day. And I, I know you struggle with it. And I know it would be easy for someone who cares so much like you just to go, just throw your hands up. Thank you that you don't. Because we need to be people who join in this, who care enough, but the honor of God that we don't just accept it, we're activated. And revival is that moment when God undeniably and radically changes me and you so we might undeniably and radically change our community. That's what Nehemiah starting. Wouldn't it be cool if we started it too? Listen to me. We got some opportunities at church. This Tuesday night, we start 24 hours of prayer. We're just asking you to sign up for a 30-minute slot. When you come up here, you'll be given some prayer points from Nehemiah and some prayer needs in our church. Invite you. You can sign up back there today, or you can get online and sign up. But we'd love to fill those 24 hours with people in this building from 6 p.m. on Tuesday to 6 p.m. on Wednesday. Please do that today. And then, you know, this week we have, we have kicked off our small group ministry, our ABC groups, our life groups. This is the place where we all split up and go into little platoons across this community. This is where we make a difference. This is where we get beyond the big rubble and we are able to confess our own rubble and we're able to help each other. We're able to serve together. And I want to challenge you. Some of you are not in a group, you need to find one. Some of you are in a group, but you're lukewarm about it. Some of you are not putting your passion into it. Let me ask you a question here. If everybody in our church was as active as you are, what kind of church would we have? If everybody attended Bible class like you do, would there be anybody up there in a moment? If everybody was active in, in, in small groups, this is where we say we get it done, guys. What would happen? Because we need, because we are in the middle of rubble, we need 100% of us together focused about the big things and after everything we need to restore the very honor of God. So what I'm asking you today is are you ready to get off the sidelines? Are you so full of God that you can't just stand there? Do you care enough about the honor of God that you know, just like Nehemiah, there's going to be a lot of penalty flags thrown at Nehemiah. A lot of criticism, but he just flat doesn't care because he cares so much about God. So my question today is so simple. Who cares? Can I stop you for a second? The legitimate response right now would be, we do. Can I ask that question again? Who cares? That's that's pretty weak. Who cares? Who cares about what's going on in our city? Who cares what's going on in the public schools? 
Who cares about the poverty on our streets? Who cares about the demise of Christianity and churches across our country? Who's going to do something about it? We will. Thank you, Nehemiah. I need this. This morning we're about to sing. If you're ready to step off the sidelines into the game, I want to invite you just to, to meet me down here. You can write down something and we're going to pray before you get out of here. If you need to, to move from just being an advocate to be active, if you move, need to move off the sidelines onto the field, if like Nehemiah, you know quite truly you've been part of the problem. Just say it. That's okay. All of us have been. And you're ready for a new start. Why don't you come right now? As we sing this awesome song, It is well with my soul. If it's not well, if you're living in your own personal rubble, maybe it's the rubble of your marriage or your children or your addictive issues or your finances, I don't know what it is, and you need this church, that's what we're here for. We want you, before you walk out of these doors, to be to sing together, It is well, it is well with my soul. Please come right now while we stand.